Let's turn to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, then you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. I didn't mark what page number it's on, but the Psalms are usually right in the middle. So if you kind of shoot for the middle, open up, you'll usually be in the Psalms, and it's number 131. And so we're taking one week break from the book of Romans today uh, to look at this psalm together. The psalm that Charles Spurgeon said is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. So let's read it shortly and then learn it longly, all right? A Song of Ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm is a psalm of childlike faith. Childlike faith in God. And as we heard this morning in the opening scripture reading that Dave read for us, we have to have a childlike faith. Jesus said that in Mark 10, 15, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That ought to take hold of you right there. Now, some people see that and they think that it means some things that it doesn't mean. They think, on the one hand, maybe it means that we should bring infants into church membership, even though they can't yet profess faith, even though they can't do what uh, what John the Baptist says is necessary before baptism, which is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I don't think that that's what Jesus meant by that. Some people think that it means that in our faith that we should just not worry about things that are hard to think about at all, uh, that we should just be content with remaining infants in our faith and not growing up into spiritual maturity. And that's definitely not what it means. It says in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And it's all, we're also told in Ephesians 4, verse 13, that what we are, are doing as we grow in our faith together is, is we're looking until that time when we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says, rather than that, rather than remaining in an immaturity in the faith, rather than remaining children in the faith, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So, It can't mean, when Jesus says that we need to have a childlike faith, it can't mean that we are to remain immature in our faith. But it does mean something. And what does it mean? Well, what it means is that we're to keep on clinging to God. Even as we grow, even as we mature, we're to keep on clinging to God with a simple, humble faith. A simple, humble faith. And that's what this psalm is about. As Jesus put it in Matthew 18, another place where he spoke of this childlike faith, he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn, which also can be translated, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see what he says there? He says, for one thing, you must be born again. You must be converted and become like children. But then he says, even as you grow in your faith, we must humble ourselves like this little child. It's a simple, humble faith. And that's what Psalm 131 is all about. It's a psalm of ascents, it says. What that means is it's a psalm that was sung as the people were going up to the temple to worship. Could have been a journey of a few hours or a few days, depending on where they lived. But they tended to sing these songs together, especially the Psalms of Ascent that are kind of all grouped together there in the Psalms. And it's a psalm that's of David. So this was written by David, who we often call King David. 
And let's just get into what it says, beginning with the first verse, that childlike faith is a faith in God's wisdom. Listen to what it says. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. What that means is that I am not arrogant. That's what he's saying. Lord, I come to you not in arrogance, but in humility. He's saying, Lord, Yahweh, God of the universe, I am not prideful. What an amazing thing to say. Now, just to to say that to another human being, that's one thing. What's kind of, you know, one of those little paradoxes of the faith that you learn over the years is that it's not often that those who are humble will say things like, I am very humble. (laughs) More often when you hear someone swear up and down that they're not prideful, it's because they are and they're convicted about it. But even if you could say that and and really feel very sincere about it to man, that's one thing. But saying it to God, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Just consider that. You can't fool God. God sees the heart. This is something that is given to us, and we, we need to learn this lesson as Christians, that every single one of the Psalms is a prayer written by God for us to give back to God. And so part of what is called upon us here is to seek to have a kind of humility where we can come to the Lord knowing that our hearts are laid bare before him with the goal of being able to say in truth, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. O Lord, my eyes are not raised too high. I am not coming to you in pride. I am not coming to you in arrogance. I am not coming pretending anything about myself. I am lowly. I am lowly. He doesn't say here, by the way, that he has never been prideful. He, he most likely is speaking as we go and, and see some of the verses that are coming up, especially as we'll get to verse 2, we'll see this, that most likely he's saying that God is the one who has involuntarily humbled him. That it seems that he wanted certain circumstances in his life that God didn't give, and because of that, he learned for his pride to be struck down and for God to grow him in humility. We have to be on guard against pride. We have to search our hearts for it. It's one of the things that we need to ask God to search our hearts for and to show us even if we are not yet aware of it. It's one of those things that as you peel back the layers of the onion of sin down in your heart, you see the one thing and you seek to take care of it and then you see the next thing, it's often one of those things that's deep down there. It's pride. And we should ask God to search us for it. And when he shows it to us, we need to repent. And we need to ask God to cleanse us of that unrighteousness. And sometimes God removes our pride, just as I said, what seems to have happened with with David and what he's speaking of in this psalm. Sometimes God removes our pride not by our voluntary searching for pride in our hearts, but by involuntary circumstances that he brings us through. He can humble us, and when he does, it's something to thank him for, to thank him that he would strike down our pride for us to know the kind of childlike faith that we need. What does pride look like? Let's think about that a little bit. As he's, he's saying, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. Well, we need to think about what, what does it mean if your eyes were lifted up, if, if your heart was raised too high. It says in Romans twelve sixteen, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Now, Psalm 131 is speaking of a pride in relationship to God that has been struck down. And now David, or us, as we pray this, we would seek to come to God with a humility toward him, recognizing our low place as man and God's high place as creator, 
holy, holy, holy God. But almost always, if there is pride in our hearts, even if we can convince ourselves that we are humble before God, usually the way that it starts to work out is not in some sort of a statement, God, I am higher than you. Usually the way that it starts to work out is in our relationship with other people. That's why it says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. If you think that you can be arrogant toward people and humble toward God at the same time, you're fooling yourself. It says in 1 John 4.20, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we can play that out in the forms of love and what that's supposed to look like. You know what the ultimate form of loving humility is? You know, you know where that's on display more than anywhere else? The person of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Jesus is, is the second person of the Godhead. He, he is eternally God. He, he is from the beginning. He was from the beginning with God, and he, he is God. I'm just summarizing a little bit of of the beginning of the book of John there. And yet what he's done is in humility, he has not counted equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the way that it puts it in in Philippians. That means he hasn't looked at the fact that he is God and said, I am going to take advantage of that with respect to these sinners. No, he humbled himself for us. He came here and took on human flesh. And, and lived and you know, began as a, a baby of a teenage mother, laid down in a feed trough, went, went through a life not of being exalted, but a life of being despised and rejected, spoken against, all the way to the point of death on the cross, where he was unjustly executed, as though he were a criminal, which he wasn't. But he did that. Why did he do that? He did that for us. And so even as we, we look here and we say, in my relationship to God, I need my heart not to be lifted up. I need my eyes not to be raised too high. Look to God himself in the person of Jesus and how he demonstrated this for us. And he wasn't saying that he was anything other than God in coming to humble himself. He wasn't denying the truth about himself. What he does is he was considering others to be more significant than himself, just as we're commanded to do. And if we have a humility toward God, it's going to play out in a humility toward man as well. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure, says God in Psalm 101, verse 5. It plays directly also into our relationship with God. It's obviously reflected that pride would be reflected in, in relationship to man, but also directly with God. One of the ways that that comes out is in obedience. If we think that we are being lowly, humble toward God, and yet we won't obey the simple things that we know that we ought to obey that he has given us, whether to abstain from sin or whether it is that we need to actively do certain things that he's given us to do, things like spending time in his word and in prayer, things like looking for ways that we can serve and build up the people that God put in our lives, whether in our houses or in our churches, all kinds of things. When we look and we say, no no, thank you, God, to obedience to him, or when we say, yes, yes, I'll definitely obey, but I'm too busy, that is pride. That is our, our, our heart being lifted up, our eyes being raised too high. And so we need to search our hearts for this. We need to say, Lord, please help me to walk after you in humility. Maybe some, sometimes this comes in the form of, of the idea that, well, God hasn't given me an important enough way to obey yet. Right? God gave that guy over there ten talents but he only gave me one talent. So he has something really important to do, but what I do doesn't particularly matter, so I'll bury mine in the ground and just give it back to God later. That's pride. That's pride. 
whether God has given you something that you consider to be big and significant or something that you consider to be small and insignificant, show humility toward God, not raising your heart and your eyes too high, but doing what God has said to do. But then all of that comes down not just to our relationship with man, not just to our obedience to God's commands, but also in the way that we view our knowledge of God and the things of God. And this is really where this verse comes down to at the end of verse 1. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Psalm 139, verse 6, says something very similar. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David has come to a point in this psalm, and we are called in the psalm to come to a point to realize that there are some things that are simply beyond our ability to comprehend. There are some things that, as God says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. Now, of course, that doing of the words of his law kind of already mentioned how that plays out in our humility. We are called to obey as those who are humble and the things that are obviously revealed, the things that are clear about life and godliness and faith in Jesus Christ. These things are laid out for us clearly in the scriptures. They're revealed. And there are also things that are revealed in ways that are harder to get at. This doesn't mean that everything that's difficult to understand is something that is simply to be left alone, because there are things that God has called us to use our minds and apply our minds to, to grow in knowledge, to grow up into the full maturity of the faith as as we come to deeper understandings of the things that God has revealed. There are things that God has laid out in the way that he has made nature that ought to just scream to us certain qualities of the God who created and what it is that he expects of all mankind. I won't get into that, but I preached on that in Romans chapter 1 if you want to go online and look it up somewhere. There are things not just in nature, though, but in the way that he has written his word. There's the direct commands of God that are clear, but there's also the implications where over time, as you come to know the scriptures better, you start to make these connections. Wait a second, that verse over here doesn't sound like that verse over here. How do those two verses go together? And we start to put together things that we didn't put together the first time that we read it. And we start to grow in knowledge and grow in understanding in ways that are beautiful. And we start to see the ways that God has worked through other people as they have been digging into the scriptures for centuries before us. The Holy Spirit didn't start working the day that you first picked up your Bible. He he has been growing people in grace for many, many centuries, and they have just simply laid out these these beautiful things in things like good, solid Christian books to to help us understand the scriptures, and we we can... compare those books to the scriptures and see these beautiful things that God would lay out for us, both by direct command and by implication in the scriptures. But at the same time, there are things that are simply beyond what God would ever have us to be able to comprehend. There are things that God just doesn't want us to know. There are secret things that belong to the Lord. That in one way, it could be philosophical and theological questions that are beyond what he's revealed. And in this psalm especially, when he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, it especially is talking about his providence. When I say his providence, I mean the way that he directs how everything goes. He created everything. That's his creation. He directs everything. That's his providence. And we don't get to know the whole mind of God about how he is directing things. We get to know what he's revealed to us in the scriptures. There's some things we can know about where all of this is going. If you look at Revelation 21 and and 22, you're going to see where all of this is going. 
But we don't get to know everything about how it's going to get there, especially not how it's going to get there in my own personal life and in your own personal life and in very specific things about circumstances. And here's where the rubber really meets the road. What about when I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, suffer? What about when I suffer deeply and I don't understand why? And I can say to myself, yeah, I, I know Romans 8.28. I know that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I, 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 I got to go back there. I got to go back there. But at the same time, I look at what's in front of me and I just don't get it. I don't get why God is doing this. And you know what David says? He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He's saying, I don't have to know. I don't have to know, but I can trust the Lord. I can trust him in all of this. This is exactly what happened with Job. In the book of Job, Job is a a worshiper of God. He is a righteous man by faith in God. God has blessed him with great riches. And then things start happening in the spiritual realm that Job does not know are happening. That Satan goes and asks God, well, actually, God brings up to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan says, let me have a try at him and we'll see if he keeps his faith. And so he loses his cattle, he loses his children, he loses his property, all kinds of things that he loses And then Satan comes back again and says, God, can I try harder? God gives him permission to do even more, even to afflict his body, just not to kill him. And then for almost the entire book of Job, Job's friends are sitting around giving him dumb reasons why all this might be happening. And Job himself is looking and saying, I don't know why this is happening. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? But then eventually God comes and God speaks. And God gives Job reason after reason that Job doesn't understand God's ways. He says, Job, look around even at the creation. Do you know where the snow comes from? Do you know how I made this Leviathan creature? As we read that, we ought to be humbled because we don't even know which creature he's talking about. Do you know the depths of my wisdom? And you know what Job does at the end of that book? A lot of people think that Job is sinless. He's not sinless. Let me put it this way. And this applies to the psalm. Job didn't suffer because of his sin, but he did sin in his suffering. And you, if you're suffering today, you may not be suffering because of your sin, but don't sin in your suffering. Here's how Job had to repent in Job 42, verse 3. He said, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great for me and too marvelous for me. Maybe today you're wondering something like, God, why did you let me get this terrible disease? Why did you let my business fail? Why did you put me in this family full of unbelievers who mock my faith in you? Why did you let me think that I was marrying the perfect person, only to find out after we got married all that they were hiding? Maybe some believers around the world are thinking difficult thoughts about kinds of suffering that we haven't even experienced here as Christians in America. Maybe there's believers in Russia who are asking God, why did you let the government outlaw evangelism and kick the missionaries out 10 years ago? Maybe there's believers in China who are saying to God, why did you let the government bulldoze our church building and put our pastors in prison? Maybe there are believers in North Korea or in many Islamic countries around the world who are crying out to God, God, why did you let my fellow believers get executed for their faith? And why is my life in danger every day for trusting in Jesus? And you know what Psalm 131 calls us to say? 
It calls us to say in the middle of whatever suffering God would send us, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. We need to remember the greatest example of all time of suffering and God having reasons for it that nobody understood. It's the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It's the idea that the Lord of glory would come to his own people and they would reject him and he would be crucified. And you know what happened in all of that? It says in Acts 4.27, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They got to see God had a reason for this all. Jesus died for our sins. And he rose from the dead on the third day. And he is victorious. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's a call for us to trust in Jesus. And it's also a call for us to look at any point in suffering, at any point where we do not understand the things that are too lofty for us. God's providence over suffering, especially. For us to look and say, God has purposes. Purposes that nobody understands right now, and yet that one day we will, around the throne of Christ, raise our hands and say, praise God for his perfect plan in all of this. It's all going to be to our good as believers and to God's glory in all things forever and ever. This just makes me think of the end of Romans 11. I said we're not in Romans today, but let me read it anyway. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's a call to humility. To trust that God knows what he's doing when we don't. Now you're probably starting to wonder why I would pick Psalm 131 to preach on Mother's Day. And if you notice verse 2, maybe you figured it out. So let's go there. That we're called to have a childlike faith in God's presence. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have calmed and quieted my soul. You've got a picture here of somebody going through difficulty and then calming down. And not just a picture of that, but a picture almost of, of, of what you would do with a baby. When a baby is just absolutely upset, doesn't seem like anything's going to get any better, there is this calming, there's this quieting. It's that process that you can imagine with a mother and its baby of picking it up, the baby finally calming down, get laid down to go to sleep. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And how does he say that is? He says, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. Now, what I read is that in the culture of Israel, in David's time, children would have been weaned probably no earlier than age three, sometimes as late as age five. That's weird to me. I don't quite get that. But one thing that that does tell us is that at that point, they're not just screaming anymore. They're telling you what they think. (laughs) The the process of, of a child being weaned coming off of its mother's milk is a process that's not always pleasant to the child. This, this is something where baby grows up, doubles, maybe triples his weight growing up on his mother's milk. And it's very, very desirable to this child. It's the source of life itself to this child. And in that weaning process, what's happening? Well, the mother is teaching the child, you can't have this anymore. In various ways, over various periods of time, but teaching the child, you can't have this anymore. You don't need this anymore. And what happens when the child has finally been through that whole process of learning, I'm not going to get from my mother what I used to get from my mother. 
Well, eventually they learn that their mother is their mother. And I don't, I don't mean just, well, my mother is where I can get these physical needs that are physically going to keep me alive. He says this picture, like a weaned child with its mother, to say, I come to my mother now because she is my mother. I find comfort in my mother because she is my mother. No longer because she's giving me these things that just keep my body going. But now because I understand that she loves me, that she's for me, that she comforts me, that she is the one that I can come to when my heart is hurting and I can find that peace that I need like a wean child with its mother. And he says, that's what it's like now. David says, that's what it's like now with me and the Lord. You see, through, through these trials that he's talking about, this weaning process is what's been going on for David. He, he didn't have everything that he wanted. God had brought him through suffering. God brings us through suffering. And one of the things that this psalm says that God would be doing for us in suffering, and I told you just a minute ago that we don't know all the reasons why. We can't know all the reasons why, but praise God that as we study his word, there are some reasons why that he reveals to us. And this is one of those reasons in verse 2, so that we can become with God like a weaned child with its mother. No longer coming to God with that infant kind of mentality of, I will go with God if he will make a deal with me, if he will give me X, Y, and Z. I will go to God to see how he can benefit me in this world. I will go to God to see if he is going to do anything for the bread that I would get, for the milk that I would get, to instead be able, through those times of weaning, through those times of trial, to be able to have a relationship with God that's no longer dependent on what we can get out of God in this life, but a relationship with God that says, God, you are my God, to be satisfied in God himself above all things. I want to know, believer, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know that God has your best interests in mind? That's a hard thing for a baby to learn in the process of weaning. My mother actually has my best interests in mind in what she's doing. It's not just weaning, by the way. All kinds of ways of taking care of kids. They don't necessarily understand that you have their best interests at heart. But you do. And as they learn that, I want to know, do you learn that in your relationship with the Lord? Not just to come to God and to trust to him in the temporal things of this life, but to trust him for all eternity. Maybe God today would withhold things from you like wealth. Maybe God would withhold things from you like good health. Maybe God would withhold comforts. Maybe God would withhold the peaceful relationships that you wish that you had in your life. But do you know, believer, that he's doing that for your good? I don't mean that you can look and see exactly what his purposes are, but instead to say, I don't occupy myself with things too lofty for me. But I trust that God is with me like a mother with its weaned child, that I can be satisfied in the Lord. I want to know, are you content in the Lord? One of the greatest, most common, most accepted sins among Christians is a lack of contentment, which is a form of pride. When we're not content, we're saying to God, you don't know what you're doing. You have done things that are not right for me. If you could just listen to what I have to say about how things should go, then you'd finally get it, God. Now, you, you probably wouldn't actually pray that prayer to God, but when you're not content in the Lord, that's what you're saying to him. That's what we're saying. But this beautiful thing is true that God is sufficient for us. Every desire that you have, 
Do you know that ultimately what you're desiring is God himself? You may not realize that. This is true for you unbeliever too. If you don't trust in Jesus, you don't even believe that God exists. It is still true that whatever desires you have, you are not going to find satisfaction in things of this world. The only satisfaction that is ultimate and lasting that you will ever find is in God himself through knowing him in his son Jesus Christ. Believers, you might tell that to an unbeliever, but do you know that for yourself too? Do you know that God is satisfying? Let's strive to be like a weaned child with its mother in the way that we walk in the Lord, not looking to what we can get out of him in this world, but looking to be satisfied in him and to trust that he knows what he's doing, even when he's withholding things from us that we would desire. There's a call here, too, to have a childlike faith with God's people. He says in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. You see, he's shifting. He's shifting from speaking to God to speaking to Israel. He's shifting in verse 3 from speaking about his own personal life to now speaking to the whole people of God. And keep in mind, too, this is a song of ascents. It was written with the intention that the whole congregation would sing it together and that groups of the congregation, as they're coming up to Jerusalem to worship, that they'd be singing it together. So even as David is talking about his personal experience, I think it's pretty clear that he knows and that the Holy Spirit who's breathing this out knows that this is not going to be individual to David. But it makes it clear in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Now, just to, to know what we're talking about, this is not just a call to quiet your own soul, it's a call to be personally content in the Lord, but also a call that we can help others be personally content in the Lord. We can help our brothers and sisters in Christ to be like weaned children with the mother and their relationship with God. When he says, O Israel, just keep in mind as we read the Old Testament, this is just a principle that we have to have all the time as we read the Old Testament, that God has more clearly revealed things in the New Testament. That doesn't mean the New Testament is better than the Old Testament or that the New Testament is more the Word of God than the Old Testament, but it's just a principle that as things went along and as Christ especially came, who was the purpose of everything that's said in the Old Testament, that as we come to the New Testament, things that were concealed have now been revealed that, that now we can interpret the Old Testament in light of the clearer statements that are there for us in the New Testament. Those who go astray in that interpretive principle get all kinds of crazy things out of the Old Testament. But as we see where it says here, O Israel, hope in the Lord, let's just keep in mind what we have been learning, those of you who have been around for the last few weeks in this church, as we've been in Romans chapter 11, what is Israel? Of course, in the Old Testament, this was the, the physical, ethnic people of national Israel, but we see in the New Testament that that was pointing to a greater reality. That was pointing to a greater reality that we can apply as we as Christians come back and read this psalm or any part of the Old Testament. In places like Romans 9, 6, we learn that there has always been a true spiritual Israel within the ethnic Israel. That true spiritual Israel is those who have not just the genes of Abraham, but the faith of Abraham. And we learn in places like Romans chapter 11 that that true spiritual Israel is not limited to just the ethnic descendants of Abraham. It's also all of those from every nation who share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, who trust in Jesus Christ. That faith in Abraham is a faith in Jesus. And as we have faith in Jesus, Romans 11 says that we are these wild olive shoots that are grafted into the cultivated olive tree, that we're brought in to be part of the true people of God, that we become branches on the vine that is Christ. All that just to say that when it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, we can look at this now in light of Christ, and say, oh, church, oh, believers, oh, those who trust in Jesus, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. We, we can 
can come together and encourage each other to hope in the Lord. One of the things that this verse tells us is that God doesn't intend us to go it alone in our faith. He does not intend us to just simply trust in Jesus and then stay home. He does call us to go and to pray in private, to go into the private place, to, to, to seek him personally and privately in places where nobody's going to see, nobody's going to reward us in this world for the way that we're seeking after God. It must be a personal faith, but it also must be a public faith. One of the reasons for that is because we need to be encouraged, and we see that here in verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord. I needed David to tell me this. I needed the Holy Spirit to tell me this. I need you, church, on a weekly and more than weekly basis to tell me this, to hope in the Lord. And I think that those of us who are, are here and who gather regularly, I think we get that. We get, hey, what an encouragement it is to come out of our prayer closet, to come out of our daily lives where we're facing these things on our own, and to be here. I mean, even just the basic thing of having all these people around us singing praise to the same God that we've been trusting in all week and, and, and proclaiming our faith in him and, and getting to look around and to see, hey, wait a second, there's, I forgot about it. Her. And I, I, I remember what she's been through in her life, and here she is praising God. I mean, just the presence of each other is a beautiful thing, but there's also this direct encouragement that we can give. And believer, no matter how long you've been a believer, no matter how prideful you are about how strong of a believer you are, you need others to encourage you to hope in the Lord. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. You need that. And you don't just need that, but you need others to have you do that for them. This is one of the big things that people tend to skip. Occasionally, when I, when I meet somebody out in the community who, who tells me that they are a believer in Jesus, but they, they don't have a church, or sometimes the way they put it is that they have lots of churches, because <laughs> that sounds more spiritual, right? I go to church everywhere. <laughs> well, no, you don't. No, you don't. Um, I tend to dig into those people a little bit. You know, somebody has a church, has a pastor, I just think, okay, I'll let their pastor, if, if they've got things going on, I'll let their pastor deal with it. But if they tell me I've got no church, no pastor, I take it upon myself to tell them what they need to do. And here's what you need to do. You need to be part of a church. You need to be accountable. And you need to be using the spiritual gifts that God has given you for the benefit of others not burying them in the ground so that you can give them back to God and say, here's how it helped me over the years. Other believers in Christ need you. That's part of why God has saved you, believer, is so that you can turn to your fellow believers and say to them face-to-face, O Israel, hope in the Lord. It can be very, very simple. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You, you don't have to have experienced all of the things that everybody else in the church has experienced. But if you know Christ, this is part of your call is to be there, to be part of the church, to be able to say to your fellow branches on the vine, hope in the Lord. And so let's do that. Let's encourage each other to hope in the Lord. And especially, of course, through times of suffering. When we see people suffering, there ought to be a, a soft spot in our hearts. I know God, God said in the New Testament that some people have the gift of mercy. But you don't say that and say, well, he didn't give me the gift of mercy, so I don't care. We ought to all have a soft spot in our hearts to say, hey, that person is going through some stuff, and I want to be there to help them to hope in the Lord and to trust in the Lord like a weaned child with its mother even if I can't provide, I know that God will. That God will be their satisfaction. And then there's a call for us to have a childlike faith for the future, that childlike, humble, simple trusting, both now and forever. He says at the end of verse 3, the end of the psalm, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 
and forevermore. This is just a reminder that God is going to keep on being the one who satisfies our souls in this life, all the way through this life, and all the way through the life to come, all the way into eternity. For us who are believers, we can, can trust that there is benefit to knowing God even now. And I said earlier that we are not to be about the benefits that God can give us in terms of temporal blessings, in terms of health and wealth and comfort, things of this world. But that doesn't mean that there is nothing in this life that's a benefit to you as a Christian. Here's the way that Jesus put it in John 17, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know God through faith in Jesus Christ? If you do, then, then Jesus says your eternal life has already begun right now. You are already in him. You're already benefiting. I love the way that the Baptist Catechism puts it. Same wording here as Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks the question, what are the benefits in this life, to those who are effectually called. That just means, how do we benefit here and now as believers in Jesus Christ? And it says, they that are effectually called do in this life partake of, here's some of the benefits, justification. You want to hope in the Lord from this time forth? Well, you need to know, believer, right now, you have been forgiven of your sins. You're right with God. Not by anything you've done, but by faith in Christ alone. Adoption, justification, adoption. You have been brought in. You have been made an actual child of God. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You've been adopted. Sanctification. This is where Jesus not only forgives us, but cleanses us. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's justification. And to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's sanctification. You can trust he's going to grow me in holiness. He's going to grow me out of these sins that I think I can never grow out of. He, he, we have assurance of God's love. I mean, that's, that's that wean child with its mother picture right there. We can trust we've been adopted. He loves us. He loves us. We have peace of conscience. To be able to say, because my sins are forgiven, because I'm walking with Christ, because I'm confessing and repenting of my sin, I don't have anything hanging on my conscience anymore. And if you do, you know what? You can get that off your conscience today. You can do it. It's right there for you in Christ. We have joy in the Holy Spirit. And not just joy in the Holy Spirit, but all of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We often take those as just commands, but they're presented to us as gifts, fruits that God would grow in us. We have the increase of grace that he keeps on doing more and more to make us like Jesus. We have perseverance in that grace all the way to the end. And we could go on and on about all the benefits in this life, but we also have to hope in the Lord not just now but forevermore. I'll just stick with the catechism for a little bit to tell you what the forevermore is. That when you die, if the Lord decides that Christ will not come before you die, then you will die, and that will be for your good as those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But when you die, at your death, your soul will be made perfect in holiness and will immediately pass into glory. That's something to hope for. And at the same time, until Jesus comes back, your body, still united to Christ, still part of you, waiting in its grave for the day of resurrection, when Jesus will return and will raise the dead, when Jesus will put your soul and your body back together in a resurrected state just like Jesus's, and at the resurrection, the catechism says, believers being raised up in glory will be openly acknowledged. You know what? You don't have to worry about being famous. <laughs> One day in Christ, you will be openly acknowledged as a child of God. And you will be acquitted in the day of judgment. Every sin declared not guilty. 
and you will be made perfectly blessed both in soul and body to the degree to where you will say, why did I ever, ever think that those blessings in the, the age beforehand, before Christ came, why did I ever think that those were worth anything? Look at what I have in soul and body now. You'll say that, and you'll have the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. That's what it's really all about. That's why all of those things will happen, is because we will be fully enjoying God himself forever and ever. So through all of these things that we don't understand, through all the suffering, through all of the hardship, through all that we can't wrap our minds around, through all the involuntary humbling that God would bring in our lives, you know what he's doing, believer? He's working for your good. He's working in ways that are too marvelous for you. And he's working in a way where he is saying, I will calm and quiet your soul and you can be with me like a weaned child with its mother and love and enjoy me for who I am. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us in Christ, that in Jesus we know that uh, you're working all things together for your perfect purposes, for your glory in everything, and for the good of those who are called according to your purpose, who love you, who have faith in Jesus. Father, I pray for those who don't have faith in Jesus today. They might also be suffering, and I don't know what they're using to handle that. But I pray that you would turn them to Christ. I pray that you would turn them to the eternal hope of having forgiveness of sins and the full enjoyment of God forever and ever. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the psalm, the beauty of the picture of being like a weaned child with its mother, and I pray that we would be that. God, we thank you for the picture that we have in our own lives of our own mothers, of the love that they show. But God, I pray that you would point us to the perfect love that you've shown us in Jesus and calm and comfort our souls in him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.